as has been mentioned, this is a special time in which we live. And uh, we're actually coming to the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's official protest. You know, uh, If you're familiar with that story, it was on October 31, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, his 95 conclusions or propositions, basically disputes with the established church. And if you missed that history, uh, you, can, you can check out our sermon online from last week, castlerockadventist.church, and check out the recording there. So this month, we're going to be looking at the roots of the Reformation. The roots of the Reformation. This is a prime time to reflect on those very roots, those things that, that really started to kind of scale things back, tip the needle back where we truly had focus, where we had missed focus for so long. And um, it's a movement that started, yes, 500 years ago, but I hope that we see it as a movement that ought to continue even today, not just uh, in an organizational level, but in a personal, spiritual journey level. And so I, that's, that's my hope and prayer today. And would you just bow your heads with me for one more time as we open up the Word of God together? Father, I am asking today for a special measure of your spirit. We recognize that, um, yeah, the Bible is a gift. It's, it's a privilege to own one to have access to one, to be able to read and understand these things is, is your will, and it's, it's our desire today. But we realize that in, our, in and of ourselves, of our natural gifts and capacity, that's impossible, God. And so that's why we're praying, praying with a sense of humility, realizing that this word is, is not man's word, it's God's word. And so we're asking for heavenly wisdom, not just our own. Please, Lord, lead us and instruct us inspire us, and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen, amen. So, Roots of the Reformation. Last week, we looked at Martin Luther's experience and how he rediscovered this root of the just shall live by faith. That salvation and forgiveness, though the abuses of the church were trying to sell forgiveness, put, uh, put salvation up for sale, and for purchase, uh, the, one of the significant roots that Martin Luther helped us to rediscover is that salvation is given to us. It's not gained by us, right? Salvation is by faith through Jesus Christ alone. And so today, the question that we're asking is, how in the world did the Christian church ever get to that point, you know, in the, in the 1500s? How in the world did the Christian church ever get to the point of of even being open to this idea that the simplicity of the gospel uh, could be so far eclipsed and so far shadowed. I mean, remember, Jesus was the one who said to his disciples, hey, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And that was, what, 31 AD? And by the time we get to Martin Luther's time, there was, so, there was this great f- uh, falling away, you could say, an apostasy, you could say. And so we want to understand that. We want to unearth that. And I want to frame it, that question, I want to frame the answer to that question in terms of a pattern or a cycle that we see both in Scripture and throughout history. And that, um, I guess, maybe another way to put this is is this. To understand the Reformation, we've got to understand something about the need for Reformation. What was it that created the need for Reformation? The dynamics that gave rise to this need to protest. What was that? You know, common sense tells us that if there was a need for a reformation or a reformation, then something along the way was deformed, right? 
if there is a need to reform something, like, uh, you know, in Jeremiah 18, there's a story about Jeremiah. He sees this potter. He goes to a potter's house, and he's working on some clay, right? And the potter is forming this clay, and, and it says that there is a, a mar or a blemish um, in that clay, and so he had to start over and reform it, right? So the idea that there was a need for a reformation means simply that there was a deformation of the church. And it's not just common sense that tells us this, but this is actually a biblical pattern. It's a biblical cycle that you see. Um, It's something that's embedded in the story of Scripture altogether. And this is something very interesting. I want to share it with you here. We've got a quote. It's kind of a long quote, uh, but it's from Richard D. Phillips. He's a biblical scholar, um, theologian, and historian, church historian. He's talking about the Reformation in his book. I, I like the title, Turning Back the Darkness, the Biblical Pattern of Reformation. And he says this, The idea of Reformation is present in the very fabric of the biblical revelation. There is a biblical pattern that not only commends, but what? Demands reformation. Okay, a biblical pattern. Tell us about this biblical pattern, Richard Phillips. The pattern is this. First, there is a formation by God through the work of his prophets and apostles, and in response to his mighty saving acts in history, to gather a people for himself. All right, so... Stage one, God forms something. And in particular, he's talking about God forming his people, okay? God forming uh, his, his redemptive work through his people. What follows, however, is inevitably what? <laughs> Sin and unfaithfulness. This is deformation, which is an abandonment of those commands and principles. So here's God. He sets something up. He, he groups the people together. And then because of sin and unfaithfulness, that clay is marred. Right? In the potter's hand, that clay is blemished because of sin and unfaithfulness. That's, that's deformation, he says. Finally, in response to the presence of deformation, the Bible demands reformation or reformation. Formation, deformation, reformation. This is the pattern amply described in Scripture. Are you following the picture along? Yeah? I mean, you think about it. Formation, God does something. Deformation, sin enters the picture. Reformation, God saves and lifts up from the curse of sin, okay? And if you, you can kind of scale this pattern up, you can scale this pattern down, and you'll see it all throughout Scripture. For example, if you scale this pattern up, I mean, this is the story of Scripture. God created, we messed up, and God recreates in the end. Amen? Right? It's, re, it's formation, deformation, reformation. You can, you can also scale that pattern down, where you look at the simple narratives throughout Scripture, and it's like there's a cycle, a mini-cycle of formation, deformation, reformation. Formation, deformation, reformation. You try saying that ten times fast, and you get kind of twisted. But you think about that, and almost every story, God is doing something, but through the great controversy, through uh, the, the, the inner workings of our own perverse hearts and iniquity, and just through the attacks of the enemy, you know, things are deformed. But then God brings about a revival of sorts repentance and a reformation to his ideal and so that's the story of scripture and when it comes to the story of christ's church this is this is what he did he formed it and over the course of time there was a deforming experience after which martin luther and others i mean martin luther wasn't the first reformer but you know in that sway in that movement the tides were now shifting where what was deformed can now possibly be reformed, okay? And so if there was a reformation of the church, then we know two things. One, that God formed it in the first place, right? And that over the course of time, through sin and unfaithfulness, as Richard Phillips says, that church was deformed. 
Um, there was a time when God originally established the church, and we see that in the, old, in the New Testament. I love it. The, you know, the church in Acts is such an awesome picture of what God does when through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we lay self aside and let God have his own way. And that was the formation of his people in, in the, the post-resurrection era. But then there was a time, as history shows us, you know, we have the advantage of history to kind of look back at church history and say, wow, from AD 31, the apostolic church, how did things slowly crumble? But what's interesting is that history not only tells us of this deformation, but when you look in scripture, prophecy actually foretells of that deformation. Very interesting. And this is something that, you know, the Pale Horse Ride Seminar will will look more deeply into. But I want us to kind of uncover that story just for a little bit. Did you know that prophecy actually foretells that the Christian church, established by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, would eventually go through not just a process of formation, but would also go through a process of deformation. And this isn't to say that God was was designing that the church would go through deformation. No, 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 no. But he was foretelling it so that in the midst of those dark, dark ages where things are not as they should be, we could you know, have a glimmer of hope saying, okay, God is not surprised by this, then neither should I. Okay? So let's talk about this. What, what, was the, what were some of the prophecies of Scripture that foretold the deformation of the Christian church? Let's go to, um, let's go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. Uh, we're gonna, this is the last book of the Bible, so if you've gotten to your back cover, you've gone too far. Okay, I'll chuckle for that. All right, (laughs) Revelation chapter 6. Here we go, Revelation 6, and Andy read from us from Revelation 2. Man, the book of Revelation, if you haven't had a chance to study this deeply, it is so poetic and powerful. It's poetic in the sense that there are these cycles of seven that kind of repeat throughout Revelation. It structures the whole theme of Revelation. And it's, a really, it's really a song about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 6, obviously it comes on the heels of Revelation chapter 5. right? And in Revelation chapter 5, John sees a vision where he sees heaven. He sees the throne room of God. And in Revelation chapter 5, if you just kind of scan a little bit, there's this instance where, where someone is as asking, who is able to open a scroll? It's a, it's a very special scroll. Apparently, the scroll has so much significance that when it's, it's resounded, hey, no one is worthy to open the scroll, John, as he's watching this in vision, starts weeping his eyes out. Apparently, this scroll has something to do with the salvation and story of humanity. And if nobody can open it, then that means that the story of humanity is just going to stay where it's at. There's no happy ending. And so as John is watching this vision, he hears suddenly that, whoa, 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 don't cry. Brother, don't cry. There is someone who is worthy. And you know who is worthy? It's a lion from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so this this, uh, Old Testament reference to someone who is a a descendant of David's throne. And as John is still watching, he hears that it's a lion from the tribe of Judah, but what he sees is completely different. He sees in Revelation 5, you can look at it, Revelation chapter 5, And it says in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Very interesting. John hears that someone is worthy to open it. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And when he looks, it's a lamb that's been mutilated. And slain. And somehow, this, this one that looks conquered is actually the conqueror. 
and his name is Jesus. And Jesus goes on to take that scroll. He sits on the throne, and then heaven begins to rejoice. Yes, you are worthy. Salvation belongs to you. It's it's an awesome scene. It's an awesome scene. And so when we get to Revelation 6, if you just turn the page, uh, for me it's turning the page, Revelation 6, the Lamb begins to open up the seals that are kind of enclosing this scroll. And as this revelation continues, what we see is an experience where John, in vision, he just saw Jesus, the lamb slain, and he's taking his throne. In other words, this is the post-resurrected Christ, okay? So this is now, upon resurrection, Jesus can now unfold the rest of human history. And so what does the rest of human history look like? What does the rest of church history look like? And that's what Revelation 6 is telling us. Do you follow the narrative? Yeah? So Jesus dies, resurrects, is enthroned in heaven, and now the rest of history is unfolded. So what we see in Revelation 6 is the the story of God's church depicted, through, interestingly enough, through four horses. And in chapter 6, verse 1, I'll start in verse verse 2, actually. And I looked and behold... No, I'll start in verse 1. Okay. (laughs) Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a, what kind of horse? A white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and see. Verse four, another horse, fiery what? Fiery red went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, what do you think he saw? (laughs) Another horse. I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a what kind of horse? A black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And I, I wish we had the time to go in, de- in great detail about these things, but you get the sense that in this black horse time, there's a famine. There's, there's food that's being sold for crazy amounts of money, and the oil and the wine are preserved in it. And then in verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, and what does your Bible say? What what kind of horse there? A pale horse, okay? That's hence the the title, a pale horse rides, okay? A, A pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him. So pale, this is, this is really the, the color of death right here. The name of him who sat on it was death, and, to hate, and Hades followed him, and power was given to them a f- over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and the beasts of the earth. So here, Revelation 6, as John is watching the story of the church post-resurrection, he sees that story visually depicted in four different phases through four different horses. They're white, red, black, and deathly pale. Very interesting. What we're seeing is, again, it's a visual depiction, it's a foretelling, it's a prophecy of the stages of the Christian church. The, the white horse stage, it's representative of a time where the church was pure and the church was victorious. Did you notice that in verse 2? It went out conquering and to conquer. The, the, the church, like, it was as if nothing could stop the church. 
You read it in the book of Acts. You read it in those early, early uh, decades after the resurrection. The church is doing great things. As Debbie mentioned, you know, Paul is preaching from a school in Ephesus and all of Asia ends up hearing about the gospel in just two years. It's, it's going out to conquer. It's awesome. But then followed by that white horse time, there's a red horse time. And the next few centuries of the church's history are, are very bloody because the, time went through a time of per, or the church went through a time of persecution. And so here we're seeing just kind of this, wow, you know, John is actually seeing history in advance. After this red horse time, there's a black horse time. And uh, did you notice again in verse, I think it was verse 6, it, this black horse was also associated with a time of famine. This was a famine of God's word. It, black is the color. It, it, it's actually not a color. It's the absence of color, right? And so it's as if light has been vacuumed out. The light of what? The light of God's word, the light of his character. And because of a famine of God's word, there's this time of spiritual darkness. The church was going through a time of spiritual darkness that you'd call the, the dark ages, right? It was also going through a time of, of spiritual compromise, that in the vacuum of God's word, there was this influx of man's ideas. And as a result of that comes this fourth period, the pale horse time, which means that after this, you know, kind of confusing, compromising time, it just led to a time of spiritual decline and spiritual death. This, was, this is really the, the deformation of the church in these last two horses. Are, are you seeing that unfold there? Just in these simple prophecies. Again, we don't have time to go in depth today, but I just want us to see this slow fade and realize that it really was a slow fade. It wasn't just like a Flip of the switch, deformation time. <laughs> it wasn't as though, you know, God set up the church, the apostles are going out, and after John, the last disciple, dies off, then, boom, the church is deformed. No, it happened over the course of many, many centuries. And this is a slow, slow fade. And I would say that um, when you look at a church history and you kind of see the context, the societal context of what was taking place, the political context of, of why the church was going through these times of, of deformation, I would suggest that, I mean, this is probably uh, an oversimplification, but it really captures the narrative pretty well. That during the time of the black horse, during the time of the pale horse, there were two strong undercurrents that led to this time of compromise. And these undercurrents are, are listed here. I, I've described it as differentiation and reconciliation. I think I got this from a book um, written long ago by J.N. Andrews, The History of the Sabbath. He talks about differentiation. Uh, in other words, that the Christians in that persecuted time, they were finding reasons to not be persecuted. They were finding things to, to distinguish themselves from another group who was being persecuted, that being the Jews in the Roman Empire. And so Christians who, they came, you know, many of the, the first Christians were, were Jewish. And as Christian Jews began to realize, hey, there are Jews being persecuted for their, their nuances, their uniqueness. Uh, what if we could find some way to distinguish ourselves and differentiate, differentiate ourselves from this other group that's being persecuted? And so as a result, they, they abandoned some of those things that, were at the time considered distinctly Jewish. For example, the Seventh-day Sabbath. Okay? They said, hey, um, Seventh-day Sabbath, that's distinctly Jewish. We're going to set ourselves apart from that um, and, and kind of you know, focus more on this resurrection of the sun, 
of Jesus Christ. And so there was this distinction there where they were trying to, almost like horse trading, what can we let go of in order to preserve our, our survival? Okay? Spirit of differentiation. Uh, spirit of reconciliation. In the process of distinguishing themselves from a group that's being persecuted, they're trying to reconcile themselves with others that are not being persecuted. Secularists, pagans in the Roman Empire. And so in the process, different thoughts, of different ways of thinking, different cultures, um, different values were adopted within Christianity. Which is why, you know, during the dark horse and the, I'm sorry, the black horse and the pale horse time, uh, it, you know, you go back to some of these ancient structures, these worship places, these cathedrals, and what you'll see are, are uh, statues or images that are named St. Paul or named the Virgin Mary, but in reality, they were originally formed as Greek gods. And so Zeus is now Paul. And, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're basically renamed. And, and Christian historians have actually called the, the Christian experience at that time a baptized paganism. A baptized paganism. And so uh, as these undercurrents were taking place, this spirit of differentiation, let's set ourselves apart from them that are being persecuted. Let's reconcile ourselves with those that are safe in the empire. As these things are happening, there is a compromise, obviously a compromise of truth. Their attitudes towards the truth of God's word were either abandon it altogether or compromise it in some way, mix and mingle it in some way. And so in order for this differentiation, in order for this reconciliation with pagan Rome to really take place, these compromises took deep root in the Christian church. And if we could simplify it, what took place, uh, sorry, <clears throat> what took place was an elevation of man's ideas over God's word. Um, go with me actually in your Bibles to, to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I mean, we're, we're kind of talking this through from the prophetic slash historical perspective, but the apostles themselves, the New Testament writers, they understood that this was on the horizon. And I want us to see this, 2 Peter chapter 3. So if you were in Revelation, you're just going to the left a little bit. 2 Peter chapter 3. Then we're going to start in verse, in verse 3. If you're there, say amen. All right. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. The Bible says this, Knowing this first, and this is from the Apostle Peter, writing to believers all over. He says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in which days? The last days. Okay, so he's kind of looking ahead, saying, hey, as, as time continues, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And what is it that they're saying? Verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Right? There, there, there's kind of this uh, barb that's being pointed at the promise or something that God has said. Where is the promise of his coming, namely the second coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Peter is saying, hey, look, there are going to be people who are kind of disregarding the promise of God's word. And they're actually going to disregard the stories of God's word too, right? In, in, that, in verse 4 it says, hey, all things continue as though they were from the very beginning of creation. But they're forgetting something. They're forgetting that not everything 
kind of uniformly carried on, right? They're forgetting, as Peter says, the story of the flood. Hello. You know, things really radically change cataclysmically. They're forgetting something. They're throwing the word of God out. And this is something that Peter foretold, that in this deformation time of the Christian church, people would disregard God's word. That was one of the underpinnings that really led, the greatest factor, probably the greatest factor, that led to the deformation of Christ's church. In fact, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul concurs, and he's writing to his disciple Timothy. He's saying, bro, what you got to do as you carry on this ministry, 2 Timothy is actually the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He's saying, hey, Timothy, just preach the word, okay? He says it, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from what? Away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is one of the greatest factors that kind of led to the deformation of the Christian church. Ears that disregarded God's plain truth and instead turned to man's traditions. All right? It's a disregard of God's word, and this is what the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul understood. That's why he's saying, preach the word. Stay close to the word. As we look also, there was another dynamic. Um, go with me to Second Thessalonians. So a little bit to the left again. Second Thessalonians comes just before the Timothys. Second Thessalonians here, the Apostle Paul writing to the, the church in Thessalonica. He's giving them a heads up of what to expect. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to go there. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. If you found it, say, I'm there. Okay. Second Thessalonians 2. Notice there is a, another dynamic that kind of led to this apostasy, this deforming of the church. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3. It says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, speaking of the, the, the coming day of Jesus, that day will not come unless the, my Bible says, the falling away. Does anybody else have it different? That's a pretty similar, okay. The falling away. The Greek word there is apostasia, apostasy, the deformation. That, that, that's a biblical term for the deformation, okay? Uh, not, Let's see, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed and the son of perdition. Again, these, these phrases here are very deep and, and profound. They're actually referring to what Daniel uh, refers to in his prophecies in the Old Testament as the little horn and what John, the apostle, writes about in 1 John as the Antichrist. But notice the description here in verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? That he is God. Whoa, 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 okay? As the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, look, okay, we, we know what's ahead. The second coming is the goal, right? But before that second coming happens, there's a deformation of the church. He doesn't use that word. He uses apostasy. He's the falling away of the church. And it's the, the rise of the Antichrist power. And he's describing this anti-Christian sentiment, this thing that is not just against Christ, but is actually substituting for Christ. And he says that it opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped God. And then at the very end of verse 4, showing himself that he is God. 
So aside from disregarding the word of God, one of the other factors is that in this deformation of the church, there was a replacement of God with the human. This is pretty huge. I mean, this, again, this doesn't happen like overnight. Hey, let's just replace God from his throne and put a man there, okay? Let's just take our eyes off of the divine and focus on the human. No, that, just, that doesn't happen just because someone posts it on Facebook. That happens over time as, as, as culture shifts take place, as time takes place, as circumstances kind of create this sense of urgency and for something different. Again, the differentiation and, and reconciliation. And so what we see here, two underpinnings of the deformation of the church, a disregard of God's word and the putting of self in God's place. I think I have a slide just to kind of summarize that. Yeah, roots of deformation. So we're talking about the roots of reformation, but these are the two roots of the deformation. Disregard of God's word and the exaltation of self in God's place. Wow. And this happened institutionally. But first, it happened personally. Okay? It happened as people, instead of fixing their faith on Jesus Christ alone, they began to fix their faith not just on, it wasn't just on uh, you know, uh, what, what God has done, but what others have done. Uh, they began to, there was a, a shifting of focus upon a human leader instead of letting God be the church's leader. There was a fixation on the human action instead of on God's action, the human work instead of on God's work. And this is how self subtly took the place of God. Institutionally, but it first started personally. These are the roots of the deformation or deformation, however you would say it. And I would submit that these are the compromises that always lead to deformation. You know, we talked about that pattern. There's always formation, deformation, reformation. These are the two things that always lead to the deformation of what God forms. Just think about this with me for a second. You know, the patterns, the the stories of Scripture. You think about the formation of humanity, right? Adam and Eve, created in God's image and blessed to be able to multiply. Puts them in a garden of pleasure, right? The garden of Eden. That's That's what Eden really literally means. God forms it, but then through rebellion... Let's, let's, let's see. How, how did it go from formation to deformation? Well, it happened as there was a replacing of God's plain word, right? You know, Eve is listening to the subtle suggestions of, of the devil. And this, the, the serpent in the garden asks, did God say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? No, there's a subtle replacement there of God's plain word, which was eat of every tree of the garden except for one. And the devil flips it, right? So this, this doubt of God's word. And then in Genesis 3, verse 5, it says, when she saw that the tree was good for food, able to make one wise, she took of the fruit. In other words, she put her own will over God's will. If there was a throne on her heart, she sat on it instead of God. And I, I say she because it was Eve, but it, this is the story of humanity. This is the story of humanity. This, this is how. We disregarded God's word and we put self in God's place. How did God reform that? Well, eventually, after uh, you know, Adam and Eve had a few boys, well, they, they continued the deformation experience. Cain, again, disregarded God's plain word and instruction, put self in God's place. But eventually, in Genesis chapter 5, you read that uh, they had another son. His name was Seth. And it says that they began to call on the name of the Lord. The sons of God began to call on the name of the Lord. There's this coming back to the word of God and a repentance from self as king. 
You think about the story of, um, of the flood. You know, God forms a new humanity, so to speak, right? Noah and his family, they come out. They come out of the ark. And then there's this deformation time, uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. They disregard God's promise that he won't send a flood again, and they start building, just in case, right? And they build that tower. It's called the Tower of Babel, um, and they meant for it to reach to the heavens. They wanted to reach heaven. I mean, it's good to to want to go to heaven, right? But to go, to have a heavenly goal on human power, that's, that's not it. They're missing the mark, right? And so that, that story, again, was the deformation of God's attempt to restore humanity. And then what does God do? He reforms that, and he brings about a man named Abraham who is justified by faith. And the Bible records, and Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He took, his, took God at his word, and he, he put self in its rightful place at the feet of Jesus, Again, you think about the story of the Old Testament itself, the formation of Israel. You know, God forms it, but then it's deformed. How? As they disregarded God's word and began to put self in God's place, human instrumentalities in God's place. And the story of the Old Testament prophets is God's attempts. Come on, guys. Come on back to reform. Come on back. So this is the, this is the pattern. This is the pattern. Roots of deformation. This always leads to deformation of the things that God forms. Throughout, you'll find the repetition of the cycle. And if deformation happens every time we disregard God's word, if deformation happens every time we put self in God's place, then could it be that reformation happens when we do the exact opposite? If, this is the, if, this, if these are the underpinnings of deformation, then wouldn't the underpinnings of reformation be simply getting back to the word and simply putting ourselves in a surrendered position to God? I mean, that's, that's really it, right? Last week we, we looked at that, the just shall live by faith. Oh man, it's not me. I'm not the Savior. Only Jesus can be the Savior. And then next week, what we'll look at is uh, more of this idea of how do we actually come back to the Word of God? How do we uh, allow, the phrase was mentioned this morning, sola scriptura, things like that. If deformation happens as we disregard God's Word and exalt self, then friends, reformation happens when we reclaim God's Word. Reformation happens when we surrender ourselves. I want to go back to something that Richard Phillips said in his book, um, Turning Back the Darkness. And I want us to notice how he kind of personalizes this pattern of reformation, or this idea of reformation, I should say. He takes it from the idea of history and now applies it personally. He says this, Reformation consists of both holding fast to what we have received as our treasure from the Lord and engaging in the ongoing work of repenting and conforming to his word in every area and aspect of our lives. You hear what he's saying? Reformation, it's not just a period of church history. It's not just something from long, long ago. Reformation is an experience, he says. And that experience consists of what? An ongoing work of repenting and conforming to his word in every area and aspect of our lives. Again, that's, that's flipping the roots of deformation right there. <laughs> That's the exact opposite. It's, it's saying, okay, this is God's word and I'm conforming to it rather than disregarding it. I'm repenting now of my self-exalting habits and tendencies. I'm repenting of putting myself on the throne and letting God 
take his rightful place. Friends, that's what Reformation is all about. It's not just a period in the past. It's an experience we can have today. And my simple question is, do we want to experience Reformation today? Do you want to experience personally Reformation in your life, in your home, in your city? Reformation happens as we experience repentance and conforming to his word. Um, simple, Simple takeaways as we try to make this personal here today. Bring this home. If we really want Reformation to be a personal experience, where does it begin? I think it begins by first recognizing the issues that lead to deformation, right? Uh, we, just, we talked about the deformation of the Christian church and disregard of God's word, putting self in God's place. <clears throat> but really, this is not just how the Christian church is deformed. This is how the Christian is deformed, okay? If we can recognize that, if we can recognize that, then we know what to repent of. If we can recognize that this is the falling away, not just of Christian history, but this is the falling away of my Christian experience, then we can recognize that and turn from that. And so my second appeal, the second takeaway would simply be this. Examine your spiritual journey just now. I like the title. I mentioned this earlier. I like the title of his book, Turning Back the Darkness. I haven't read the the entire thing, but I think it's very powerful because that's what Reformation is all about. Turning back the darkness. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says that God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so my question, I guess a heart-searching question that you can chew on, that I think the Holy Spirit wants to impress upon us today, is simply this. Am I experiencing a slow fade of deformation? You know, going into darkness right now? Or am I experiencing a growing trajectory of reformation? There's one last text. I don't think I put it on the screen. I I want us to close on this. This is Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19. Proverbs has a way of putting wisdom just in a few lines, a few words. And in Proverbs 4, near the middle of the Bible there, I think Solomon gets something right. Proverbs 4, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. Okay. Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19. The Bible says, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. Does that sound good? I mean, it sounds like a Hallmark card right there, right? (laughs) The path of the just. Oh, man, what does the journey of someone who's justified look like? What does the journey of a righteous person look like? Well, Proverbs says, it looks like the shining sun that grows brighter and brighter until the full light of day. There's this increasing dynamic. Maybe you have the NIV. I like how the NIV puts it. It's like the first gleam of dawn. Uh, maybe a little bit warmer than that morning star time, right, Andy? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the first gleam of dawn that grows brighter and brighter to the full light of day. That's what the path of the just should be like. It's growing brighter, growing brighter. But then notice the contrast in verse 19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. I want us to consider this today as we're talking about the roots of the Reformation. Where is our journey? Are we growing brighter and brighter? Are we growing darker and darker? And as you're examining that, and if you're unsettled by this experience of, of slowly fading, then recognize, bring to awareness that the things that are leading to that are a disregard of God's word and the putting of self in God's place. And if you're not wanting verse 19 to be your testimony, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I want to examine the factors in my own experience and be honest with myself. God, am I growing brighter and brighter or darker and darker? And if I'm on the latter side of that, 
then Lord, please show me how I can reclaim your word. Please show me how I can repent from putting self in your place. Let's turn back the darkness, amen? Let's turn back the darkness. Let's let verse 18 be our story that the path of Godfrey, the path of of this church, the path of each and every one of our homes is like the first gleam of dawn that's just getting brighter and brighter to the full light of day. How? As we take hold of God's word and as we surrender ourselves to Jesus. I want to sing one simple chorus together. Maybe you know the words. I don't have the words up here. It's a turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to sing that with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our desire is to turn back the darkness. God, as we just kind of surveyed the, the experience of the Christian church over time, Lord, we want to be honest with our Christian walk in our hearts, in our homes, on this personal level, God. If deformation has been our story, then Lord, it's high time for reformation. God, thank you for just kind of giving us a glance at uh, what are the things that make for the slow fade? What are the things that make for the falling away And God, I pray for the honesty of heart just to have the good sense to to come back and to let you turn back the darkness. So God, I pray for our individual hearts today. And I ask that you would forgive us for times in which we have allowed ourselves to disregard your word, allowed ourselves to uh, replace the truth of your word with our own opinions or preferences or with others' opinions and preferences. Father, please forgive us and redeem us from that. Lord, I also pray just on a personal level that if we have been neglectful of, uh, of being humble before you and recognizing that you are God alone and not we ourselves, then Lord, I pray that you would redeem us from that too. God, I pray that in our homes, in our marriages, if we have been disregarding your word, if we have been putting our own preferences in place of God's purpose, that you would please turn back the darkness. God, we want our lives to grow brighter and brighter. We want our homes to grow brighter and brighter. Would you please, would you please bring us back to your word? Would you please give us repentance today? This is our prayer in Jesus' saving and powerful name. Let everyone say, amen, amen. Thank you, friends, for joining us today for worship. Um, As you're leaving, realize that there are...